This is the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. The Australian curriculum is a legacy of the last Labour government, which gave an independent body the task of assembling a blueprint of what should be taught in schools across the country. If the aim of this charter was to lift educational standards, it has self-evidently failed. Australian schools were once among the best performing in the world. Today, they have slipped down the rankings in numeracy, literacy and science compared to other OECD nations. That is despite the fact that the federal and state governments are paying around 10% more a year to educate a child than they were when the curriculum was released. After reading the recently released draft review of the curriculum, I began to see why. It is an abstruse, cluttered document that brushes aside the need for tried and tested teaching methods and is burdened with an ugly postmodern agenda. Everything, including maths, is viewed through the prisms of Indigenous dispossession, sustainability and global citizenship. What's gone wrong? Can it be rescued? Or is the whole idea of a centrally prescribed curriculum to be abandoned altogether? Frank Faridi is a British sociologist who writes with great clarity on the crisis in Western education. He joins me on the line today from his home in Kent. Frank, it's a great pleasure to welcome you back to Watercooler. Hi there. Nice to be with you. Frank, you've been following this debate to some extent in Australia over the new National Curriculum Review, which I think reflects some deep problems or deep things in our culture, which we'll go on to talk about later. But first of all, the curriculum seems to be completely obsessed with a, a few issues which run through everything. One, primarily, I think, First Nations people or Indigenous Australians, that theme runs through everything. Uh, Climate change, of course, is a stream called sustainability. And another stream which runs right through the curriculum is relationships with Asia. And that goes through everything. So we have Indigenous maths, for instance. You know, Indigenous people, uh, we're told by the curriculum, think about mathematics and numbers and spaces in different way. What is going on here? Can you help me unpack this? Well, I think what's happening in Australia runs in parallel with similar developments in the United States and in England, uh, where a kind of pedagogy, uh, which is based upon different fads, serves as a substitute for um, the teacher's authority, which is, which is principally about uh, communicating uh, your knowledge in a particular discipline. And I think what has happened is that pedagogy has shifted away from an academic, you know, discipline-based kind of enterprise to one that is desperately trying to find some uh, pedagogic um, uh, instruments for um, retaining a degree of purpose and motivation for the students. And I think the unfortunate thing that has occurred is that this kind of very narrow Philistine pedagogy has now fused in with uh, a kind of... uh, identity-oriented uh, kind of uh, pedagogy culture where you're trying to, in a sense, educate children into a way of life that is very different to that of their ancestors. I think the common theme in 
every Anglo-American society is you teach the kind of values whose main merit is that it is unlike what the grandparents were. So that's why it's very important to forget about your national heroes. It's very important to forget about our uh, cultural heritage, particularly the cultural heritage of a Western civilization, and instead substitute for that, you know, things like indigenous knowledge, things like, uh, you know, worshiping and sacralizing the environment, things like, you know, sort of uh, uh, teaching children new ways of emotionally relating to one another. And I think that kind of package of, uh, of, of values, these kind of like, almost like pseudo values, are an attempt to almost you know, sort of create a, an outlook on young people that's quite distinct that anything that has gone on beforehand. I think it's very important to realize that this represents a, a radical departure from the meaning of education historically, because historically, education is a, about conserving and communicating the values and the heritage of the past, the traditions of the past. Education now is not to communicate and transmit uh, the best that has been achieved in the past, but instead it's about novelty or bringing in new uh, sort of values and, 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 and fads that are completely unconnected to anything that has gone on beforehand. So it's a way of breaking with the past and, it's what I call the education of year zero. You begin now, and everything that is good is going to happen from here onwards. Everything that is bad is what they used to teach in the old days. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head in the first question. The one thing that struck me about it, when I did a word search on this national curriculum, and I found uh, it contains five references to Christianity and eight to Islam, Interestingly, there are no references to Christianity after the medieval period. So it's as if they're imagining that the influence of Christianity on modern society uh, ended at 1750. So the world's fastest growing religion has no influence apparently today and, and has no influence on Australia, which is extraordinary because, you know, as you know, this country was settled by men from the Enlightenment who had deeply moral values which emanated from Christianity. Why, why are we trying to exclude religion from all this? Well, it's not just religion. I think it's uh, the role of the Greeks, the role of Roman civilization, the whole you know, Judeo-Christian tradition, which in a sense kind of merged together over the centuries, are seen very much as something that we feel uncomfortable with. So instead of teaching young kids the joys and the, uh, and the inspiring stories of the Renaissance, the inspiring stories of what happened in Greece and what happened to the Christian world, instead of doing that, well, what, what we find is that uh, we kind of look for new uh, sort of uh, reminders and values that we think are potentially quite important. And uh, you got this kind of double aspect of it. On the one hand, what you're teaching uh, young people in Australia or in Canada is that uh, arguably the culture of, of First Nation people is almost like the high point of human achievement and therefore it should be taken seriously. And it's an interesting uh, kind, of, kind of concept because at the same time as, as creating this impression that uh, First Nation culture is, is way 
more sophisticated and complex than anything that the West has achieved. What you also have is a, is a an attempt. This is happening in Canada, where some educators are arguing that because First Nations people are not as educated or deprived as the rest, they should be able to do, for example, examinations without writing uh, sort of scripts, without writing essays, just by dancing or singing, you know, or, or doing stuff that comes natural to them. So you got this kind of paradoxical uh, hypocrisy. But on the one hand, you you kind of use them as a as kind of a, a kind of an exotic bait to capture the imagination of young kids, whilst at the same time, instead of um, inspiring First Nation children to achieve the best, to level upwards, we try to get away to level downwards. Yeah, the tyranny of low expectations. I think we call it. And, and but I mean, you've, you're spot on there. But I see you're using the right language, Frank. First. Nations people. Uh, I, I didn't realise till I read this report that the term indigenous is now a no-no. We moved from Aboriginal to indigenous, and I was just about using the right language. But now I discover that I'm not using the right language anymore. Language is important, isn't it, in this in this project of sort of knocking everything over and starting again? It is. I, th- I think that uh, I, in my own personal career. Going back decades, I've underestimated the uh, significance of language for a very long time. I, I just thought these were just uh, idiotic words that were being invented and used. And I, I still remember when, you know, a chairman became a chairperson, you know, sort of. And I remember rebelling against that um, because I was I was the chair of my department by calling myself, just call me chair, you know, sort of. Didn't realize that, you know, if you control the language, then you're able to influence the way people think. And, and, and now there, there's, a, there's a constant attempt to influence people's thinking by continually changing the words. And, you know, uh, you mentioned the, the shift from indigenous to First Nation. Well, I can predict that if we're, going to do, if, we're, if we're doing this interview two years from now, there will be another word that you have to use because by that time, First Nation will be seen as being racist or xenophobic or, or something else. And, and through man, the manipulation of language, what you're doing in effect is you're, is you're using language as a lever to control the thought and influence the emotions of the people that you're, in a sense, not educating, but indoctrinating. One thing that sort of rings right through this national curriculum is that um, it's quite apparent that the, whoever is writing this, the, the committee or whoever composes this uh, document, uh, has probably never been in a classroom or not recently. Uh, I'll give you an example. So year three students in of English, uh, the end of the year amongst the 33 things they are supposed to have achieved is they are supposed to recognise the significance of camera angles in advertisements uh, in insofar as they portray power relationships between the people in those advertisements. These are year three students, so that's quite a, a sort of complex thing to get into their heads. But suggest to me the whole thing is done by academics, people who are not actually ever coming into contact with year three students. What do you think? Well, I call these people curriculum engineers. And, and what curriculum engineers... Are, are are people who have got a certain uh, 
orientation, a certain uh, objective that they like to move towards. And the way they kind of cobble together the curriculum is dictated not by the needs of children, not by the needs of proper education, but the realization of their social engineering ambition. And I think that you know, what they are doing, in a sense, is they're kind of recycling their values through children. I know in the case of Britain, this happens most uh, stridently in relation to sex, or what they call relation education, where the sexual hang-ups or the latest sexual fads of, of these curriculum engineers is literally uh, sort of uh, recycled through year three children. I mean, they're getting even younger, six, seven-year-old children to talk about sexual consent. I mean, I don't know how, you know, what that could possibly mean at that particular age. They're getting, you know, six, seven-year-old children to learn about their unconscious bias. I mean, it's almost as if they're becoming a caricature of themselves just in the way that they're recycling this. So in that sense, I think you're right. I think these are people who are not educators in the sense that we understood that historically. They're curriculum engineers who have social engineering ambitions, which trumps the educational needs of young people. There's also a kind of deep misunderstanding there of what, what the how the human brain develops and what people are capable of at, at different ages. I mean, I'm, I'm not as well read on this as I should be, but I do remember from studying some psychology at university that at different stages of development, you know, the brain works in different ways and these high abstract concepts that we, we like to talk about, you know, it's very hard for a, a child to even grasp what you're talking about but they, they're behaving as if children are like fully formed adults yeah i mean uh, I, I think it's a complex issue because I, i'm all in favor of teaching abstract concepts very very early on as long as we've done the groundwork so just to give you an example i don't know what the latest situation in australia is but i know that in many parts of america and in england there's a very strong uh, sort of uh, consensus that children should not have to learn the timetables for themselves. You know, sort of, they don't have to learn that six times six is 36. And instead they are taught a kind of mathematics, which is based much more upon self-discovery. Now, I think that that's an irresponsible way of doing stuff because what you're doing is you're not providing young kids with the basic groundwork that they need to go on to do mathematics. But at the same time, what you're also doing is you're not really teaching them abstract maths in the, in the right kind of a way. Because in a sense, you're, you're leaving it up to the children to put, you know, get, get this kind of stuff right. And I think that the really big problem is that very often educational curriculums are no longer attending to the need to provide grounding, basic grounding at a very, very early age, on which later on, you could then develop, you know, a much more theoretical, conceptual ideals that they can learn from. And I think that kind of, uh, sort of the logical priority, for example, memorizing things is overlooked. And instead what you've got is this kind of collapse of the different levels at which uh, uh, ideas ought to be sort of uh, transmitted and educated to young people. You know, more evidence that this is composed by 
academics rather than teachers is the language they use. So you know, it's a very, very abstruse, highly complex uh, form of language. So, for instance, I give you, we, we, they, it doesn't really talk about disciplines. So English, mathematics, science—they're not disciplines; they're continuums. And there's far worse examples of that. You know, where they'll use ten words where one would do. I suspect what what's going on here is is it's part of a quite conscious attempt to exclude ordinary people from this debate. So you'd think that a national curriculum would have certain standards in it so that, you know, say, for instance, by the end of year three, you should be able to do cursive script or, or joined up writing, as the this document calls it, and parents should be able to read that. And if their kid is struggling with doing neat handwriting at the end of year three, they can go to the teacher and say, what's going on? Do you think that's right? Am I right in this? Is it, is it a deliberate attempt to sort of exclude, exclude parents and others from this discussion? Possibly, but I think that the reason for it is because it's, it's a way that you, get, can, you can give professional status to yourself. I think the way that curriculum engineers justify their role uh, is through the esoteric language that they use, the, the way that kind of uh, their vocabulary becomes self-referential as a way of saying, look, we are the experts. You know, we know what, what a curriculum should look like. And because we are the experts, you, know, you ought to take us as the authority of the final world word on this. So I think it, it's very much a kind of uh, sort of uh, an attempt to kind of construct professional authority through the use of certain kinds of language and words. And I think that, that that aspect is really quite important. They are obviously in the business of subordinating parents to their way, to their particular outlook. They regard parents as not fit and not able to have the sophistication to understand the educational need of their children. And they're very paternalistic and patronizing the way that they go about doing this. But there is something else which is even more insidious and that's the fact that if you, if you kind of scratch the surface and look underneath in terms of what they're saying, what they are basically saying is that what we should be teaching is not the disciplines, the knowledge-based disciplines that are essential for the intellectual development of children. So they are not, you know, they are not uh, committed to academic learning, but they are, but, but they are much more interested is a kind of instrumental skills-oriented learning. So earlier on, you mentioned the camera angle that they must learn. Well, actually, aside from the fact that, you know, sort of, I don't know what, you know, year three kids can do that, they're much more interested in teaching skills to children, you know, knowing what a camera looks like, than actually teaching children uh, the kind of uh, scientific, you know, sort of foundation through which you can understand, you know, how, you know, you kind of use a camera to get a picture how, how a dark room works and what were the scientific processes that have gone into that, which is really what they need, you know, rather than playing tricks with camera angles. I think you're being very generous to them, Frank. You're saying that they're trying to teach this and that. Because one thing that struck me about this is the word, you know, the verb to teach appears hardly at all in this lengthy document. You know, instead children are exposed to various things they're supposed to always absorb things by osmosis and and the, the 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 example of that that's got a lot of attention here is in the the field of literacy so uh, old-fashioned phonics is replaced by you know whole language where 
you know, it's assumed that kids naturally are able to read. You know, it's, there's no they don't have to be taught to read. They don't have to be taught the verbs, and, and they don't have to be taught the letters and the semantics. Am I right in that? Is it is it a whole change? Is it, is a teacher being relegated to the role of a facilitator? Well, this has gone on for a very long time. In I, 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 in England, for example, uh, these uh, engineers, curriculum engineers, uh, want us to use the word learner instead of teacher. So some head teachers, head masters, not call themselves head learners. And the whole idea is that you, you erase the distinction between pupils and teachers because we're all learners after all. And very often when you, when you hear one of these uh, fashionable headmasters talking to the assembly in school, you know, he or she will begin by saying, oh, you know, we haven't got teachers here and, and pupils, we're all learners here, you know, sort of. And it creates this kind of phony, manipulative dimension to things. But there's also uh, another thing about this, which is, I think is really critical, which is that by adopting this approach, you're, uh, in a sense, avoiding taking responsibility for educating young people, because it is your, your teacher is your responsible to teach. You know, you're, you're not in, in the school to learn, right? If you want to learn, then get a further education course at a university. You're in that school to teach. And by uh, assuming this masquerade of being a learner, what you're doing in effect is depriving young people of, the, of a very important resource they need, which is an, an authoritative teacher who stands on or, and, or falls on their authoritative uh, ability to communicate a discipline, a field of knowledge, you know, which is their authority to the, to, to the young kids. Because otherwise, we don't need anybody to stand in front of us if we're all the same. You, you touched there, I think, on some, some deeper trends that are there, and you, which you've written about in your book, Wasted, Why Education Isn't Educating. And we'll, we'll go, come to those later uh, but 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 first let's continue to unpack this um, this weird phenomena which is manifest in the national curriculum review here in Australia there, there's a reluctance to really acknowledge the importance of true citizenship I think in this you know the citizenship in insofar as it's taught in the civics course it completely um, uh, bypasses the issue of responsibility. So it's all about rights. It's all about respecting and and kowtowing to oppressed peoples of various sorts. It's very little in there that suggests that you have any responsibility, your fellow citizen. You know the old Christian idea that um, love thy neighbour as thyself, which seems to be fundamental to our concept in 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 Britain and Australia of of citizenship is completely missing. Well, I think the, uh, the three essential virtues that children need to be exposed to are courage, um, responsibility, and duty. And these three virtues are the foundation on which classical citizenship and modern citizenship are built. Because as a citizen, you know, you have duties, you have responsibilities to your community, and to your fellow citizens. And you also need to have uh, the courage in order to protect and defend and to stand up for the kind of uh, community that, that kind of brought you into this world. 
Uh, and I think there's a good reason as to why uh, these values are not not thought that basically these values have given away to the values you mentioned earlier on, like uh, sustainability or emotion, you know, or uh, sort of celebrating, sacralizing uh, sort of uh, first nation people. There's a very good reason for it. But in addition, there's another thing. There's a lot of stuff about, you know, the importance of respecting diversity. That's another value that they like and, and respecting the different identities that exist within society. But the one identity that they really don't particularly want to celebrate or even talk about is that of the identity of a citizen. That somehow, and that's really important because it is as citizens that we become, uh, in a sense, part of something bigger than we are. You know, somebody whose identity is a woman or, or a, a trans person or, or his identity is, is that of a, a gay person is merely being who they are. Right. They basically are saying, this is what I am. You don't have to have a lot of education to come to terms with the fact that you're a woman. Right? That's, you know, that's who you are. That's, what, that's what, what you were born. But as a citizen, you, know, you, you as a citizen aren't just simply somebody who's born into something. You, a citizen allows you to transcend your, indi- your individual sort of self and assume a, a wider more community-wide sense of solidarity for everybody else. And, and that important element of public life and of democracy is something that has been overlooked. And, and it, indeed, it, it, it's been very often criticized and, and marginalized uh, within the kind of uh, curriculum project that we're discussing. I think it's important. At one point, I, I think it's really important for Australians to understand that this curriculum has got nothing to do with uh, the needs of Australian people or Australian children. This curriculum isn't just a bad curriculum for Australians. This is the same curriculum that is more or less, with a few different words, uh, produced for Americans, for Canadians, and for English. The same kind of ideals are, are, are there. And it is not the needs of Canadians or Americans or English people any more than Australians that has led to this. It's, it's got to do with the particular uh, uh, cultural politics of the designers of that. And I think Australians really need to understand that, you know, but the origins of this curriculum isn't just simply um, derived from the head of the curriculum engineers. It actually comes from somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've looked, we've talked about this before, of course, this sort of globalization of identity that, that people are not located to any particular place. They're, they're citizens of the world and this is interesting in the, in this curriculum the there is a lot of emphasis on global citizenship so you you're sort of taught very badly and roughly and very inadequately about what it is to be australian but then they move on big time to our responsibility as global citizens this is this is something we can recognize it goes back 30 40 Years, but it's very definitely, isn't it, part of the way the, the people who devise these things are thinking about the world and trying to instill that into children. Yes, it, I mean the purpose of this idea of global citizenship is to create a psychic dis, psychic distance between children and their community, so that the real citizenship is not your live, lived experience in your town or amongst the people that you live with in your neighborhood, what, what's really elevated as the high point of citizenship 
is this nonsensical abstract ideal because there is no such thing as global citizenship. And what does that mean? What's a global citizenship? It, it doesn't mean anything. You haven't got any uh, kind of rights or commitments or duties that are specific to uh, living in a global world. And the very idea of being global is really a fantasy uh, sort of concept because at the end of the day, you know, you can imagine, you can pretend you're a global individual, but at the end of the day, there are very clear organic links that, that kind of tie you to a particular experience and a particular family and a particular neighborhood. And I think that uh, this kind of global citizenship just simply creates a, a medium to which young people are, in, are encouraged to feel distant from where they come from. It's a way of separating them from their background. But it's very seductive, isn't it? Because, um, yeah, sure, I mean, deep, deep in our culture, in the way we think about the world, is the idea that every human being is of equal worth. Uh, and and you see this, don't you, when you get, um, you know, an international tragedy, like, say, the tsunami or an earthquake somewhere, that, that people feel deeply moved about the plight of human beings, you know, on another continent and, and will give money and huge amounts of money sometimes so what's the difference between that, you know, just feeling human sympathy for another human being that's suffering and, and what they're talking about, global citizenship? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the healthy, positive tradition of Western civilization uh, contains an idea of cosmopolitanism, which was developed particularly in the Enlightenment by people like Immanuel Kant. And that idea of cosmopolitanism basically recognizes that as human beings, we have certain moral obligation towards one another. And that moral obligation, for example, included hospitality, uh, you know, sort of in, in certain kind of circumstances. But that cosmopolitanism you know, did not mean that somehow we were detached from our nation or our community. It didn't mean that we were no longer Germans or French or Australians or anybody else. It simply meant that as, uh, in, on a moral plane, you know, we had a, a duty to, uh, in a sense, recognize the moral worth, the equal moral worth of all human beings. And I think that's really important, and our empathy towards them derives from that. But that's, that kind of uh, sort of moral uh, cosmopolitanism is very different than what's being suggested today, which is basically one of abandoning our cultural, national, community uh, sort of solidarity uh, or taking pride in where we come from and understanding that the pride that we have is particularly important because, you know, it's something that we, we can do something about. We can cultivate that pride. We can develop it. And I think that as human beings, you know, we have this moral obligation, but at the same time we have duties and responsibilities that we can only exercise in circumstances of our own making, in circumstances that are linked to our experience. And once you overlook that, then you basically create these kind of vacuous people that don't belong anywhere, who kind of mouth this kind of new kind of cosmopolitan Philistine talk, but basically merely becomes a way of avoiding taking responsibility for the circumstances that they were born into. The idea of cultural relativism, relativism generally runs through this curriculum. So, you know, as I said, there are 33 things a child is expected to pick up from English classes in year three. 
but there's no priority given to any of them. So, you know, the very last on the list is handwriting. You know, you should have a certain standard of being able to write handwriting. It, it seems to me that this is deeply um, problematic for teachers. You know, they, they're going in there and they're thinking, which of these things is most important? But, but the, it, the curriculum sort of lot, obstinately refuses to tell them which is the most important to rank these things in any order. Well, I, I don't think it's an accident that handwriting comes fairly low on the list for the very simple reason that teaching children to, to write um, properly is far more challenging and far more difficult for a teacher to, to realize than teaching children to feel good about themselves, teach them all these different kind of emotional skills. And I think that um, you know, the basics of education have remained remarkably similar over the, over the centuries. And even though we're often told that you know, what kids learned in the old days is no longer relevant, the fact is that learning how to read and write uh, remains no less important in the 21st century than in the 19th. Learning how to uh, count, do the times tables, multiply, divide, add and subtract, are no less important in the 21st century than beforehand. Learning to understand the culture that you come from and the values that made that culture what it is are as important today as they were in the 19th century. So there are certain kind of foundational principles of education for children that are, are really quite obvious. You don't need a PhD in pedagogy to figure those out. And I, but what has happened is that they've added all these uh, add-ons like you know, emotional literacy, for example, is often a favorite, you know, sort of, or, uh, you know, sort of allowing, you know, children to express themselves, you know, sort of in a variety of different ways. And basically saying that, you know, if, if children can express themselves through movement, that's a kind of kinetic intelligence that's just as important as, as what you and I would call real intelligence. And you have, I don't know, uh, how familiar are they got this, uh, this question of multiple intelligences that you teach children. Whereas you and I know that there's only one intelligence that counts, and that's you know, real intelligence. You don't call you know, the fact that you're tactile or you, you, you've got certain emotional abilities intelligence in the same kind of a way. So I, I, think, that, you know, I think that the problem that we have is a refusal to acknowledge what needs to be done in a classroom. And you circumvent that by basically piling in everything that is of secondary importance. Because all of us, are, we don't want to be you know, arrogant and suggest that there's something very special about our culture that, that's better than others. And yet it seems to me when you're studying, for instance, the English language, uh, you, you have to distinguish between Shakespeare, who basically invented the English language, uh, and... Uh, Aboriginal Dreamtime storytelling. You know, the, 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 you teach both, but but one needs to have quite high uh, primacy because it underpins the way our society is and the way we jointly think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very important for us to realise that there are certain uh, key uh, figures and, and, and key contributions to our intellectual life whose role is almost foundational. And, you know, we can dispute who they are exactly, but by and large, you know, sort of, if I was 
pick a football team of of these individuals, you more or less agree, you know, the, you know who, who these individuals are. Um, and it's not it's not arrogant to say that you know that uh, you cannot be an educated person, uh, you cannot be a, a young individual going to universities without never having been in contact with Shakespeare. I mean, I think if, if you've done that, then you've simply been deprived of the richness of the English language and the nuanced ways in which uh, English uh, literature kind of captures reality. And, and that doesn't mean to say that you don't necessarily teach the latest fashionable author or poet or familiarize young people with different ways of expressing and communicating ideas that other cultures will have. But the point is, is that once you begin to create this cafeteria of culture where you just kind of pick and choose, between the, what you end up doing is, is forgetting the fact that there are certain things that are essential for an educated person. And I think that you know, in a, a, I would be happier if in Australia had a debate about you know, who are these essential contributors, a real debate about what kind of... Uh, you know, literature is really crucial. And we can argue and debate about it as long as we recognize that there's got to be a gold standard uh, sort, of, uh, sort of set of ideals and, and a gold standard uh, sort of contributions that we preserve and, and treat on a higher plane than uh, other writers, other poets, you know, who are, are probably okay in their own right, but they're not in the same league as these people who humanity has recognized as having a distinct role to play. Um, we go back at, at just a few steps and go back to the subject of FNPs, First Nation people. We've already explored the, the origins of that term and why we now are obliged to use that phrase. There's a very interesting phenomena here which I've been puzzled about for quite some while, but it's deeply embedded in the curriculum and what it what the way it thinks about people we used to call indigenous is the rejection of the idea that they were hunter gatherers um uh, you know a a, a pretty um harsh and uh, and basic existence so you know and until the mid to late 18th century indigenous culture was just isolated from the rest of the world, as you know, and and uh, because of the harshness of living on this continent, uh, they hadn't uh, kind of developed into any sort of sophisticated society. They were they, um, they, they were in effect basically hunter gatherers and 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 a little bit more, but not much more. But there's now this this view that that that's a patronising and bad way to think about Aboriginal culture. And we should be recognising that they were, in fact, much more sophisticated than we've traditionally been saying. Uh, a, a, a guy called Bruce Pascoe has written a book called Dark Emu, which has had enormous impact uh, in um, in Australia and is now taught in schools as fact. But it sets up the idea that Aboriginals were were farmers and they had you know proper towns and proper houses. None of this supported by any archaeological evidence at all. Why? Why is it that we we can no longer accept that there was this fascinating and beautiful culture uh, that existed here before the arrival of European settlements, but it but it was quite different from modern culture. Why is it that they want to make 
make out these people were very sophisticated human beings when self-evidently they, they, they hadn't had the opportunity to develop in that way. Well, I think that the, 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 the project of rewriting history, which is now very central to the culture wars being fought you know, throughout the world, has got two important elements. What the first element is to uh, spoil the identity of Western-related cultures. So in the, in the case of Australia, it means getting people to feel guilty about being Australians, about rewriting the Australian past as this relentless uh, sort of uh, kind of process of, of violence and exploitation and oppression without, with no redeeming features. So that's the one element. The second element is to basically reinvent a kind of fantasy history where uh, sort of uh, First Nation people, what I call exotic people, are exoticized and, and, and kind of subjected to a good news history. And there's a number of ways which, which is done. One of the ways in which it is done is that whilst criticizing the sophistication of Australian Western culture, they actually argue that there was a much more important kind of sophistication that indigenous peoples had, which was unlike these horrible Westerners, they had learned to come to terms and live with the environment. And they were like the first environmentalists who understood what the what nature and what the what the planet really wanted. And you kind of create this kind of fantasy history where suddenly, you know, all the values of sustainability and everything else, which we in the West only discovered a few decades ago, were deeply embedded in in these indigenous cultures thousands of years ago. And of course, once you go down this kind of fantasy rewriting of history, then you will discover that you know they had a, you know, a very sophisticated, um, hitherto underestimated, hitherto unacknowledged uh, kind of cultural and political and economic life. And I think that the very fact that this is taken seriously in Australia is a symptom of the fact that um, Australia, a significant section of the Australian uh, middle classes have become sufficiently estranged and guilty from their own background that, that literally, literally uh, they have uh, embraced what I call the Disneyfication of history, a kind of uh, uh, Walt Disney-produced view of, of, of a very kind of romanticized past. And I think that that uh, has really got to be fought because it, 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 the kind of flattering of indigenous culture does a disservice the people who are in, in that kind of predicament, instead of helping them uh, and, and assisting uh, them to find their own way of gaining independence, you kind of just flatter them. And at the same time, it also violates the essential norms of what really happened in the past and has a negative effect upon Australian identity and Australian culture. The important thing is to recognize that this, these were uh, hunter-gatherer societies with their own rituals, with their own way of life, which you know essentially was was dominated by the constant need to survive. And we all know that when you're struggling to survive, life, certainly compared to a more affluent community, is not particularly pleasant. It's it's something that you know has you know kind of calls into question your life on a day-to-day -day kind of basis. So the way that I look at it, there's no point in 
going into the ins and the outs and, and looking at the limits in terms of that society. But I think where is it, what is important is not to romanticize it, right? And I think that the tragedy is, is, is the fact that, that the project of romanticizing what was essentially a, a struggle for survival and recasting that in, these, in this very exotic kind of language has got nothing to do with the societies that are being turned into these uh, wonderful exemplars of environmentalism. It's got to do with the fact that a, a section of Australian society uh, has lost belief in its own uh, sort of culture, has become extremely troubled by its own identity, and has uh, created uh, almost a need for some kind of alternative identity. And it's, it's done what, what some Westerners have always done, which is that they found that it, it's through a, what is, there I use that word, a primitive society, that they can rediscover themselves. And you know, very often you'll find that. I remember even, even in my days when I was young, a lot of my friends fled Canada or, 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 or the West, and they discovered their true selves in India, at least for a couple of months before they realized that life was a little bit more complicated. But there is that kind of, but you know, it's one thing to go to India to discover who you really are and to kind of delude yourself for a couple of months. That's one thing. I can live with that. It's another thing when you violate the norms of historical accuracy to the point at which you distort reality of everybody that lives within an Australian environment. And you, f- you, you create a world where people feel so guilty about opening their mouths and, and, and telling the truth about what really happened in the past and what's really going on now. The romanticization of, of Indigenous culture is, is, is balanced, on the other hand, by a complete, deliberate, seems to me, uh, failure to acknowledge what's good about modern Western society. And, uh, and this curriculum, national curriculum, does that all the way through, really. There's no kind of acknowledgement that there was something special about the modern era and, and science and technology and where that's taken us and the, the great prospering of Australia, really, uh, from 1788 onwards. Uh, we, we just... What's, so I guess my question on this, Frank, is, is what are we doing to children when we just, just tell them repeatedly that there's something shameful about modern Australia, uh, and we, we never, it seems to me, ever uh, attempt to say, well, it's actually quite a good place in many ways. Well, uh, I discussed this problem in a, in a book I've got coming out in September, which is well, what you're doing is by detaching people from their roots, by detaching uh, young people from the previous generations into which they were, you know, into the communities into which they were born into, uh, and by distancing themselves in in, a, in such a violent, you know, you know, a kind of a psychic violent kind of a way, what you're doing is you're you, is you're leaving them with very little. You know, you haven't really, you know, sort of given them over the gifts that human civilization has given to us. They're deprived of those gifts, and as a result of that, what happens is that children then go on and develop, you know, a, big, a classical identity crisis, where in a sense. They don't really know who they are. They feel a little bit guilty about where they come from. But the guilt they feel about the horrible past that Western civilization has given them is not 
assaged or, 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 or neutralized by something positive. Because at the end of the day, you know, you can't really get a positive identity by learning about sustainability, learning about emotions, emotional education, learning about how nice, you know, indigenous people are. You need something a little bit more than that. And I think what you have and what you end up with is our young people are relatively fragile emotionally. I lack the moral and the intellectual resources very often, but fortunately not in all cases, to make their way in the world. And I think that uh, the kind of indoctrination that your curriculum is promoting violates the very precept of what education should be all about. And certainly if I, if I was living in Australia, I would be campaigning you know, uh, wholeheartedly to get rid of a national curriculum like that and particularly fighting against the values that underpin that, which are fundamentally anti-educational. The, well, well, the national curriculum um, was a, 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 something we inherited from six years of Labor government between 2007 and 2013. They, uh, the education minister, Julia Gillard, in the, in the Kevin Rudd's government, went on to become prime minister herself. But she had a... A deep concern about education, about education children, and 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 she introduced reforms. One of which was a national curriculum. The other was about spending on schools. You know, the, the argument was we weren't spending nearly enough on public schools, and that that was why we were, you know, education standards were falling. Uh, that you know we were falling down the international rankings, along with Britain. I think Britain sort of slipped down there too, uh, in terms of you know, basic literacy and numeracy and, and, and scientific understanding. So they had to spend a lot more. So uh, so the federal government spending per child on school education has gone up by 50%, 5-0% in the last 10 years. We're spending a lot more per child to educate them in schools, and yet... And this is recurrence funding, right? This isn't. We're not talking about school buildings or anything. Just how much we spend to educate a child every year, um, and and yet standards have continued to slip. So it's not money, is it? And, and you raise this in 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 your book, the paradox of education: that the more society invests and in, expects of education, the less schools and universities demand of students. It's it's not a money question, is it? No, and I think it's it's worth mentioning that in Australia, prior to the in, introduction of the national curriculum, there were problems uh, with the educational system. But the reason for that was because of that the pedagogy that we're discussing today was already introduced much earlier on, maybe not in the, the same crude, you know, anti-Australian way that it is now, but the essential pedagogic fads were already in place in Australia and, and principally it didn't mean a, a lowering of expectations of children, flattering children, uh, underestimating the importance of disciplinary knowledge transmission, uh, focusing on skills all the time. And here business was as, 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 as guilty in relation to this as was the other side, as was the, as was the left identity politics people, because they actually uh, sort of united in, in supporting this kind of pedagogy. And what happens in the, is that a national curriculum, as in England, just merely made the problem worse by centralizing it. So it basically meant that everybody, all the schools, became subject to the same kind of stuff at the same time, and which, which kind of deepened the problems. 
And we know from, from uh, looking at the world that it's not money that uh, solves, obviously uh, solves the problem of education. Obviously you need resources for education. But I remember uh, when I was in Australia, uh, uh, I think about seven years ago, six years ago, talking to a headmaster in one of the schools in Sydney, you know, sort of, he said, he looked at me and said, you know, Frank, I can predict, I can tell you in advance how kids are going to do. And I, and I thought that was really sad, you know, that you can predict in advance how they're going to do. And I think, but he was really getting it, getting it. He said, well, guess who are the worst kids in my school? And I said, I don't know. And he said, they're kind of white English immigrants, people's children that come in here. And then he went through, you know, sort of, and guess who are the best students in my school? And he went through, and of course they would be the Asian students, you know, sort of who would be doing better than indigenous Australians and everybody else. You know, so the question is, you know, why are Asian children doing better in that, in the same school with the same resources as English white, you know, sort of children do? And the reason for that isn't because they got more money, you know, that teachers give them, a, you know, you know, sort of 10 extra dollars every single day. It's because of the cultural expectation that those children's parents communicate to them as opposed to those of other children. And I think that the problem in education in Australia is a cultural one. And until we get rid of the national curriculum and create the conditions where we have different types of schools doing different things, education will, you know, will continue to lag behind and, and education will, will, will really not, uh, in a sense, exploit the potential there is in a school to raise standards throughout the nation. Yes, you, you, in, in, in your book, Wasted, why education isn't educating, which is um, a number of years old now, isn't it? I, I mean, I, 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 I've got the Kindle version here, and I couldn't, it didn't seem to have a copyright uh, date on it, but I think it's about 2009, 2010 you published that book. Something like that, yes, yes. yes. Um, so you, 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 you're way ahead of the trend, but, but you, you touch on something that's deeply sort of troubling in there the idea that the whole, that a, there's a crisis, if you like, in adulthood. You know, we don't. Add, there's no adults in the room anymore, and 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 that comes through in this national curriculum. You know that we we don't have any authority. You know, how dare a teacher tell a kid how it should read or write? Because it's the children who have sort of elevated. And, and of course, the whole Gre- Greta Thunberg thing is a vivid illustration of this, isn't it? The wisdom wisdom comes not from adults but from children. Yeah, I mean, this is called. Uh children-centered education, but that's a myth because children-centered education, you know, it doesn't mean that we're centering around the children. It basically means that adults, and particularly adults in classrooms, absorb themselves the responsibility of educating young people, of, of taking young people seriously. But it's much easier uh, not to have to be, you know, sort of somebody that imposes discipline on the classroom. I think that what has happened is that Increasingly, there's an argument that actually, you know, children, you know, sort of can teach adults as much as adults can teach children. And in the book, I call this socialization in reverse, where you're getting this kind of reverse mentoring, where it's the teachers, sorry, the children that are meant to be educating the teachers and the adults. So a lot of schools basically tell children, when you go home, tell your parents to recycle, educate them about, you know, sustainability. When you go home, tell your parents about uh, healthy eating, you know, so 
it's no longer the case that it's the parents that, that know what children should eat. It's the children who know far better because they picked up the latest word in the classroom. And you got this, what is in fact the flattering of young people to the point at which young people are very rarely challenged. You know, uh, in Australia, like in other parts of the world, teachers often no longer criticize children. They don't say this is wrong. They don't say that this is bad. They find some euphemism through which they avoid. I mean, Australia, like in England, you know, when you're a child, you come home with smiley faces and sometimes you kind of come home with 50 smiles. I remember my son, you know, who, who was, is no Einstein or no genius coming home from school one day with 15 smiley faces. And, you know, obviously children pick up on this. They're not idiots. The kids know that they're just being flattered and flattered and flattered all the time. But the trouble is, is that flattery is addictive. And they are very often young people who have been told that they're brilliant and they're great and they've got complex ideas who've never been criticized. When they do get, uh, when they do face a challenge, they often feel and that that's the kind of bullying that's unacceptable and they do find it difficult to deal with the pain and distress that inevitably happens to all of us when we fail sometimes when we get criticized for stuff. You and I, and I always enjoy these conversations, Frank, but you and I, of course, are in the very privileged position of not actually having to implement public policy. We can just talk about it and, uh, and what's wrong with the world and how they might put it right. But let's get back to the real world. So you're, you know, let's suppose you are Australia's education minister and you've been presented with this absolute dog of a document by the ACARA, the Curriculum Authority, and you look at it um, and, and you're, your first instinct is, oh, can we patch it up? You know, can we do something to actually, can we seek submissions from sensible people and actually make this thing work? Uh, or, but I, I sense from what you've been saying and the way you've been talking about this that the, 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 the culture that produces this is so deeply embedded and it's so woven through the thinking of, of the pedagogists who uh, produce these documents, that it's, it's maybe beyond redemption, that the only thing to do is tear it up and start, start again. Well, if I was the Minister of Education in Australia, the first thing I would do is to try to either get rid of or, or limit the influence of the teachers' training programs that are around, because that's really where the problems begin. They educate teachers to learn uh, this kind of utilitarian pedagogy of, of low expectations. And I think that that's the first problem. Uh, the second problem, I think, is, is you need to get rid of the national curriculum for two reasons. One is because I think that you know, it's when, when, whenever schools have more independence and uh, that they find you know, the, the most commonsensical ways of relating to the students that live in their own environment and can develop uh, adequate programs for that. And there, there, you, know, you can have greater freedom for schools whilst at the same time ensuring that assessments and standards uh, are common to everybody without necessarily imposing the curriculum on them. So I think greater freedom for school is really quite important. And finally, what I would do is I would get, get you know, sort of people who are uh, at the top of their game in their subject devise the curriculum rather than the curriculum engineers. So I would get real mathematicians to kind of work out ways and means of teaching math. You know, what are the standards? What do we expect of kids to learn in math? I would get people that actually 
have read uh, and understand English literature, you know, uh, to kind of work out a way of, of, of learning about English literature and real historians to kind of work out a, his, a history curriculum. These are relatively easy things to do. There, there's no difficulty in, in creating a, a kind of common standard for uh, everybody, for of the, uh, all the kids of the same generation. But it's going to be a common standard that's based upon disciplinary knowledge rather than on ideology. And secondly, it's based upon uh, allowing schools to have more freedoms. Because the last thing you want is a centralized educational system where essentially what happens is that is it, it's not the good practice that gets centralized, but the kind of lowest common denominator that 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 kind of create that that becomes the norm in all all the schools, and I think that the general experience has been that that this kind of approach uh, cannot be reformed. There, there's no way you can reform it. All that you can do is patch a few things up here and there. And I think you know it's about time that we had a bold minister of education who took themselves sufficiently seriously to say, "I'm here to educate. I'm really here to educate, rather than to uh, sort of uh, kind of." Uh, babysit young people and, and rather than to, you know, to indoctrinate them with all this kind of garbage that they're getting from people whose real commitment is not to the future of young people, but whose real commitment lies elsewhere. Frank, thank you for your time. And uh, it's it reminded me we should, we should be seeking more of your time because your observations and your, your wisdom on some of these issues is really very illuminating. Thank you for joining us today on Water Cooler. Pleasure. Really nice to talk to you. We're very keen at the Menzies Research Centre to produce more of these thoughtful discussions. You can help us by becoming a regular subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. You'll find all you need to know about subscribing and donating on our website. Go to menziesrc.org. That's M-E-N-Z-I-E-S-R-C.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening.